Hi there, I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks for listening for the week of August 28, 2023. Historic drought, record heat, severe water cutbacks. Life isn't easy for Arizona farmers these days. Some are trying to adapt by planting new crops and using new technology. Others say they'll leave their land fallow and install solar panels or wind turbines on the fertile soil instead. Phil Latzman has more about how the University of Arizona's Agricultural Extension is helping them transition to the farms of the future. With three-quarters of Arizona's fresh water supply going to farmlands, the recent reductions imposed on Colorado River supply is having a huge impact on agriculture in the state. It's all about stretching that, that water dollar or that gallon of water a little bit further That's Paul Paco Allerton, a third-generation farmer in Casa Grande, who says he has already been squeezing every last drop for his fields. Our yields have improved dramatically. Irrigation efficiencies have helped quite a bit. But it's still not enough to keep his family business afloat. The longtime cotton farmer has had to make adjustments as well, turning to more drought-resistant crops used for animal feed. So what we're doing is is we're planting triticale in November, we're taking it off in May, and then we'll follow that with teff grass, which is actually a desert, low water use, low input. Both these crops don't use much fertilizer either. And we're doing both those crops for less water than what we would grow a cotton crop on in the same field. Allerton and other farmers are getting help from the University of Arizona's Cooperative Extension. Ayman Mustafa heads the Maricopa County office in Phoenix. We are producing more with less. So we are like cut in terms of like land and water, but we are still like producing even more in terms of like the crop and the yield. Mustafa says they are helping farmers use advanced technologies, including robotics for pinpoint irrigation. So we are using every drop of the water to deliver to the root of the plant in a very precise way so we can like, you know, use less of this water and enhance irrigation efficiency. The ag extension is also getting its hands in the dirt. Dibankur Sanyul is the U of A's Dr. Soil. Uh, I'm a soil health specialist, so my job is to make sure, like a doctor, if, if the soil is healthy and well. And if not, then what do we need to do? And Sanyul says Arizona's mineral-rich dirt, along with bountiful sun and year-round harvest, still make it the ideal place to grow, even as water supplies diminish and temperatures heat up. Very, very productive soils here in Arizona, though it doesn't look like it, but with water, it can produce the best crop in the world. And that's why in many crops that we grow, we have the highest productivities all over the world. Some other places, like in Midwest, we have very fertile soils too, but they don't have the sunlight we have. So we have the perfect combination of natural factors. Sanyul is working on making those special soils even more potent with the right diet. So we are thinking like, can we boost our soil's health by adding some microbial amendments, like when you take probiotics for your gut health. Allerton, the longtime farmer, compares many of the suggestions he's heard over the years to snake oil, but says this seems different. We like to think we can trust these guys compared to somebody that's actually trying to sell us a product that's got a small fortune of several hundred million dollars in development and EPA registrations. With decreasing water supplies and the majority of the state's allotment going to farmers, 
Some say farm fields should be cut back or replaced with solar panels, something that's already being seen in parts of Arizona. The experts at the U of A believe that would be a mistake. We will get more energy, but what to do with that? If you cannot make your food, what do we do with that energy? If we learn anything from like the pandemic, the, the COVID-19 pandemic just like a year or so ago, is that we need to produce our food as close as possible. We need to shorten like the supply chain, and we need to have this in an efficient way. So the research continues into doing more with less and getting as much crop per drop to save the state's ag business, which according to the Arizona Department of Agriculture is worth over $23 billion and still employs over 100,000 people. Bill Latzman, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news, among a long list of things threatened by the pandemic, a familiar question had been asked, is this the end of the movie theater? As people had to socially distance, theaters had to shutter their doors while officials worked to figure out if there was a safe way to continue operating. Well, theaters haven't disappeared as feared. And as Greg Haney reports, some summer blockbusters this year have shown that people are still willing to spend big to go to a movie. It's showtime. The question of whether movie theaters could survive was rather familiar for the industry, which has had a series of threats for decades. With the boom and spread of televisions in the 1950s and the rise of streaming in the late 2000s, the question was not new but simply in a different form. Though the pandemic has had lasting effects, and studios faced unexpected box office performances of several blockbusters. Films like Indiana Jones and The Dial of Destiny were overshadowed by another phenomenon— Barbenheimer. Arizona Republic media critic Bill Goodykunt says that double feature created something Indiana Jones couldn't. Between Barbie and Oppenheimer, they got people excited about going back to the theater as an event. For Goodykunt's, event is the key word here. The marketing teams jumped on the twin features to draw people to theaters. Whoever's in charge of the marketing team for both Barbie and Oppenheimer, they deserve as big a raise as they get because that's what really made things take off. But Goody Kuntz doesn't believe this would be possible for just any movie, and capturing anything like it again would be incredibly difficult. What he says helped make these stand out is that behind the buzz, they were well-made movies. Movies he doesn't think that could be best enjoyed at home. I think that there is no question that seeing a movie like Barbie in a theater packed with other people dressed in pink is a lot more fun than watching it on your couch. There's just there's just no way. But just as the pandemic threatened theaters, the whole film and TV industry is facing another setback. Strikes from the writers and screen actors guilds are posing their own problems for the big screen. To use a favorite COVID phrase, that affects the supply chain. Anything that makes it harder for people to go to see new movies is going to be bad for theaters. Still, there are other things that can be offered at movie theaters that don't rely on new products coming from Hollywood. Local movie theaters such as the Majestic Neighborhood Cinema Grill offer their own weekly events, highlighting movies from the past. At our Tempe venue, we have like every Tuesday night, we have Cinematary, which is um, hosted. It's a horror film every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. That's Andrea Canales. She's the director of programming with Majestic and says those showings draw loyal fan bases. That audience is probably 50 percent of the same people coming every week which is really unheard of. <laughs> In another series cultivated there, it is showing a run of movies called History of the Future with the Arizona State University Center for Science and the Imagination. 
The lineup includes movies such as RoboCop, The Truman Show, and a 1975 James Caan film warning about the dangers of corporate control. Who's excited about Rollerball? The Rollerball showing was almost completely sold out. Bob Beard is the Center for Science and Imagination's senior program manager. For Beard, coming to a local theater is the best way to host these events. Local theaters like this, they live and breathe by this type of programming. Having the courage to bring sort of alternative programming and, and, and educational programming to a public audience who's curious for this and taking it outside of ASU and outside of the campus walls, I think that's super important. Playing these old movies is still important for audience members like Steve Hosa. It's nice to be able to see that these films that I enjoyed as a kid are now being exposed in movie theaters like The Majestic to younger audiences, that they can um, see films that maybe are not being shown regularly on like Netflix. After Rollerball finished, audience members were chatting about highlights and breaking down their interpretations of the movie. To Hosa, these movie showings don't just provide a fun night out, they are pieces of art that have something to say. Things that were being warned about in 1970 is, is now happening now. And if we had only listened to what these films were saying back then, we may not be in the position we are now. Bob Beard with ASU says showing movies like Rollerball provides an experience you can't get anywhere else. I think people are coming to have a communal experience, especially everything post-pandemic. Like, we're looking for ways to get back to normal. This is a way to get back to normal in a really fun way. Greg Hawney, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Get more out of life. Go out to a movie. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. Plant-based diets are trending everywhere, including Indian country. On Tuesday, a newly published indigenous cookbook centered on southwestern cuisine is underscoring how healthy eating is good not only for our bodies, but for the environment. And as Gabriel Pietrazio reports, the book is connected to a kitchen in Santan Valley. Rochelle Garcia calmly crushes kernels of blue corn inside her kitchen. Her soft hands, one bejeweled with a turquoise stone and another wrapped in a silver ring, firmly grip a beige grinding stone about the size of a meatloaf. Do you replace the stone a lot? No, this is my grandmother's stone. And there's a lot of history. I was fortunate enough to be gifted this. This Danae chef cooks from the heart and channels a strong connection to her ancestors through that stone and the sacred corns of the Southwest. As I grind the corn, I begin to think about how it was used, the laughter that comes with it, the stories, and it really is something that's continued to be passed down. Her father, Reynold Thomas, a northern Paiute from the Falun Paiute Shoshone tribe, began growing blue corn in Cayenta. A family tradition, it's one that she'll pass on to her nine-year-old son, Matthew, and even turned into a budding business, Blue Corn Custom Designs. Her indigenous brand meshes cultural customs from Navajo, Falun Paiute Shoshone, and Fana Aafam communities. She sells custom-ordered raw ingredients used for blue corn products, and her signature juniper ash is always in high demand. Blue Corn Custom Designs is one of only a handful of indigenous agribusinesses in Arizona, featured in a directory in the new plant-based cookbook, Seed to Plate, Soil to Sky. It elevates indigenous entrepreneurs in the process. That's the purpose. 
that's exactly it. That's the author, Lois Ellen Frank, a Kiowa who consulted Garcia while compiling the cookbook. It's a love letter to the Southwest and its uniquely sizzling and savory flavors, and most of all, the indigenous producers who cultivate and cherish them. And I think that was the initiative to have a source guide so that the small mom-and-pop businesses that are popping up, people can order directly from them. She operates Red Mesa Cuisine, a contemporary Southwest kitchen in Santa Fe. Her talents as a photographer and native foods historian manifested in a previous cookbook, Foods of the Southwest Indian Nations, earning a James Beard Award in 2003. Two decades later, she's exploring the origins of the Magic 8, potatoes, tomatoes, corn, beans, squash, chili, cacao, and vanilla. There's more, but those Magic 8 didn't exist anywhere outside of the Americas until after 1492. So these are inherently native, and they're a gift. And another native contribution, plant-based dieting, which can help combat preventative diseases. When we look at the indigenous diet, you go back to the past, you understand that these issues didn't exist now, and we say, what changed? The cookbook's 130 unique recipes draw from the past for a healthier future. There's plenty to chew on for food scholars to glean from the book, but it's also pragmatic. That's Melissa Nelson, a professor of indigenous sustainability at ASU. It's really rooting it in practicing these recipes. A Diné construction worker turned chef, Walter Whitewater served as the cookbook's Native American culinary advisor. People eat meat, people eat cheese. Then the diet will catch up with you, too. He had to cope with his own health challenges. It changed me, you know, because I was diagnosed with polyp. Whitewater insists he's living proof of the benefits of plant-based eating. I'm due to be checked again. The first time they did that, and they said to me, what you do, there's nothing in you. I said, green, green. And then they said, green, green? Yeah, veggies and stuff like that. And that's what really cured me. Back in Garcia's home, her father lies in a bed next to the kitchen, dealing with dementia. She and her husband have become his primary caretakers. Despite his declining health, him being just within arm's reach keeps Garcia cooking that sacred blue corn atop her cast iron griddle. And when I handed her a hardcover copy of the cookbook, she finally saw the Garcia name printed as a part of this plant-based movement. You have to take a look. Oh. <laughs> oh, wow. We don't say, oh, we want to be in a book. I'm just very honored because I just see my family. You know, this is the work of, of all of them. It makes me cheer up. <laughs> For KJZZ News, I'm Gabriel Pietrazio, reporting from Santan Valley. In Science News. Art and science are often viewed through an either-or lens, but not in the Phoenix Bioscience Corps as Christina Estes reports. On the top floor of the newest building in downtown's bioscience core, this is a labor of love. A curious crowd listens and learns. Is he's using experimental forms of behavioral economics. It's the first look at the artist and researcher exhibition. 10 teams, each made up of one researcher and one artist. The topics and mediums vary, but the goal is the same, to creatively communicate the research. 
So we used AI to conceptualize a lot of these works. Artist James Angel worked with researcher Chad Stecker, who studies mobile health designs like apps and wristbands. How do we design wearables which provide signal to individuals about their health and their behavior in a way that motivates and helps them achieve their goals? Stecker imagines more people choosing devices to track their behavior and biology. The future wearable is this crazy contraption on your head that's monitoring everything going on in your body, but also your brain, there might also be room for creativity for someone to express themselves through the design of that device. Drawing on that vision, Angel used augmented reality. Tap your phone and images of people with different headpieces are superimposed on the real life environment. As you go around, you can see other iterations, you know, to show the idea of these customizable whole health systems. From high tech, we have pamphlets for the new recruits, to high touch. My form of expression is textiles. Anne Morton handmade embroidery patches for a fictitious group called EC Corps and created posters with their slogan, Stay awake, stay aware, stay contagious. The project encourages contagionists to spread what researcher Barrett Michaelit calls our superpower, EC, or emotional contagion the catching of others' emotional states. So you could be walking down the street and see someone who has, you know, who is clearly sad through their body language or facial expressions, and you'll come to feel some level of that emotional state yourself. He wants to spread emotional contagion in the healthcare field. Traditional thinking, Michael says, is to minimize emotional connections because they can overwhelm healthcare workers. But he says the evidence isn't there. So if we start teaching healthcare practitioners and health profession students to lean in to that authentic innate ability to connect with patients and others emotionally, think of the data that provides to help that patient out and engage in more interprofessional practice. The research is happening around the Phoenix Bioscience Campus, home to scientists at Arizona's three public universities, biotech companies, and the Translational Genomics Research Institute, where Johanna Stefano works. I'm very interested in the intersection between environment and genetics. She collaborated with artist Monica Aisa Martinez, who initially found De Stefano's research on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease intriguing but confusing. She wanted to see an actual liver, but De Stefano's lab doesn't use organs. When Martinez tried another route, things got personal. I need a, a real person to tell a real story. Do you know anybody? And I said... I have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and I think you were surprised. I was, I was very surprised. Yeah, she, she said, you're so healthy. With DiStefano's permission, Martinez drew a full-scale portrait of her face and organs. Oh my gosh, I cried, I cried, I just couldn't. It was very emotional. She saw herself just without skin, just like vulnerable, open to the world. An open mind is what pediatric neurologist Vinod Narayanan brought to the program. I did not anticipate being paired with a dancer. Through movement, Nicole Olson shares the story of Rett syndrome, a rare genetic disorder that affects a child's ability to speak, walk, and eat. I was nervous about it at first, of how do I talk about that through dance, and how do I make sure that I am respectful of everyone's journey. Her eight-minute film, The Mirror, portrays a woman who sees herself as she is inside, alongside her ever-changing reflection. So I've shown it, this video to a few of my, the parents of my children with girls with Rett syndrome. Inevitably, they break down in tears. I think people from different backgrounds, when they see it, 
they will see the reflection of their own family struggles in that video. I think that's really what's great about it. From dance to glass globes and jewelry, the 10 teams will discuss and display their projects next month at U of A's Health Sciences Education Building in downtown Phoenix. Their art will remain on display for several months. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In education news, the Buckeye Elementary School District is implementing a new program at two of its campuses this year. As Bridget Dowd reports from our education desk, it's intended to help students develop leadership skills. Kindergarten through eighth grade students at West Park and Inca Elementary Schools will be participating in a program called Leader in Me. Anna Carino is principal at West Park. She says the program requires students to take on new responsibilities in their classrooms. So for our younger kiddos, that could look as simple as like classroom jobs, right? Like who takes the attendance up to the front office or, um, you know, who helps the student when they need to go to the nurse. She says students will learn about the seven habits of highly effective people by author Stephen Covey, like how to be proactive and develop better listening skills. Each class will also develop a mission statement to set goals for what they want to achieve throughout the school year. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. Rural Arizona has a tough time keeping young residents. A new survey says that can change. From the show, here's co-host Mark Brody. The group asked young people in a handful of Arizona towns about housing, jobs, education, and recreation in their communities. They got more than 400 responses, the majority of which came from high school students. Kate Stewart is Senior Programs Manager on Local First Arizona's Rural Development Team, where she oversees workforce development programs. She joins me to talk about the survey and its results. But, Kate, let's start with what you were actually trying to find out with the survey. We were really interested to hear whether... um, some of the misperceptions we thought we maybe were hearing about youth in rural Arizona were true, or we really wanted to go directly to the source to understand, was what we were thinking and hearing from around these areas true? People saying, youth feel this way, you think this. We really just wanted to understand, kind of find out where to even start asking youth, does this information really line up? Is this really true? Um, And we realized a lot of what we were hearing was maybe anecdotal, because it was sort of, oh, when you feel this way, you think this. But then when we asked, how do you know that? Where do you, where are you getting that information? There was always sort of this like, you know, oh, I, we just, that's just what we think. So we thought it was important to go right to the source and to really start to understand, is this true? How did you pick the communities in which you put the survey out? We tried to target across the state. So we did Northeastern, Northwestern, Um, Arizona, and then Pinal County area and um, the Copper Corridor. And we picked those communities based on a few things. One of those things being that those areas generally have pretty good jobs available. And we wanted to kind of measure that information, like open positions and available jobs against perception, youth perception. And we also really wanted to, um, we realized that those communities probably had never had research like this done in them before, right? Mm. If they had, it had been a really long time. So we saw this need for information. We sort of went around and we also have relationships in those communities and asked, do you have uh, youth as a priority in any of your um, town plan or your economic development strategies? And they all did. So that was sort of how we narrowed down. So you mentioned the perception that a lot of people have about young people in rural communities. It tends to be that, you know, there's not a lot going on. There's not a lot of jobs there, not a lot of reason for people to stay there. How does that match up with what 
the actual young people in these communities told you? We were so surprised by that. The number one thing that young people said was that they did want to stay in their communities and that one of the reasons they cited was the people who live in those communities, that they value the relationships that they have, that they were getting support from people in their relationship, in their um, communities, that they had people they could relate to in their communities. So youth really do want to stay where in the rural places that they live. They also cited, obviously, the nature and the natural resources around them and um, the kind of just natural beauty in, in rural Arizona as a reason for them to want to stay. Of course, wanting to stay and being able to stay are, are two different things. Did they find that there were jobs and other opportunities for them in these communities, much as they might want to be there? Many youth reported that they felt like they would have to move away to find a quality job. And what was also really interesting was, what do you think the number one um, career pathway that youth were interested in was? What would you say that would be? I would say something in tech, maybe. The number one career pathway that they were interested in was in healthcare, huh? which we were really surprised to hear because there are lots of uh, pathways into healthcare. Yeah. There are lots of opportunities in rural Arizona to get into that field. So we thought that's a really easy place to start right there, that th- these programs already exist, the pathways already exist, youth are interested at a pretty high rate. So again, it was this sort of, we recognized the tension between what youth thought and felt, and then the reality in some cases wasn't quite the same, that there are career pathways, they just weren't aware of what they were or how to get into them. That would seem to be an easier problem to solve than the problem of, I want to go into career X or sector Y, and that not being an option in a particular community. Yeah, that's what we were really surprised by. We kind of thought um, we would hear some of those things that, oh, I'm just not going to find anything that I'm interested in. But all of the top career pathways that youth were interested in there are existing positions or ways for them to get involved. Entrepreneurship was very high on that list as well. And then we were also surprised that performance arts and um, being an athlete were pretty high on the list. I think that goes to show that pretty much a lot of teenagers want to be famous, <laughs> but also that you know rural youth are ambitious and they're creative as well. And there are some really interesting programs in rural Arizona that um, really kind of facilitate those types of interests. Well, so what kinds of things do some of these small communities need to do for the careers that they have there to let people know, mm-hmm. hey, this is a thing that you can do here? And for maybe those those areas of the economy that people maybe want to do, start a small business mm-hmm. or, you know, acting or performance art, things like that, to let them know, okay, here's how we can work together to maybe make that happen where it doesn't exist now. Mm-hmm. Well, our next step in this process is to host community conversations and to bring this information back to the communities and say, what opportunities do you see? Our work is very community-led at Local First Arizona, and um, we really want to facilitate that. We also recognize there are a lot of of those existing opportunities right there. We have all of the pieces in place. We have a lot of small businesses that are very engaged in the community, and then we have young people saying they want to start a small business. So and the, the third piece of that is that we have young people saying that they value the relationships they have with adults in their community. So that's an opportunity to create more mentorship or internship opportunities. Really, again, helping youth understand the tangible stair steps on those pathways. It's not, you don't have to, you don't have to be way down the line. You can start where you are. You can leverage the existing things you have available to you and maybe just take some steps towards a, a goal. Understanding that every community is a little bit different, 
Are there specific policies or messages that you think are particularly effective in terms of convincing young adults to either stay in their communities or if they've left for education or for whatever reason to come back? I think, again, um, we didn't ask specific questions around some of those things in this survey, but to me, the opportunity that we see in the, in the answers from the survey is to leverage relationships, to, re- to leverage the small business owners or the economic development leaders or business leaders, um, their time and energy and expertise and say, let's connect you to young people, to the young people in school that are really passionate about becoming an entrepreneur. We heard about entrepreneurship across the whole state when we did this research. It was so interesting to really create opportunities for relationship building, whether that, again, is formal through an apprenticeship or internship of some kind, or whether it's just from hearing from different leaders the potential opportunities. I think that's really the first step. So it's really taking what what they valued in finding opportunities to increase it or infuse those natural connecting points with more information. So I think... um, There are some public policies or some efforts that economic development and civic leaders can make, but I also think the business community plays a huge role in this. All right. That is Kate Stewart with Local First Arizona. Kate, thanks a lot for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. And finally, in Fronteras News. The Department of Justice and the state of Arizona have reached an agreement on how to handle remediation efforts from the shipping container border wall. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick has more. The wall went up along a rugged stretch of the Coronado National Forest and cost Arizona taxpayers nearly $100 million. It was an illegal project that happened on federal land without permission. The wall was dismantled earlier this year after the federal government filed suit. The state has now agreed to pay another $2.1 million to fix the environmental damage left behind. But Miles Traphagen with the Wildlands Network says more research is needed to fully assess the impact. And so, you know, to reach this conclusion after uh, such a short period of time, I, I think is really giving the state too much of a pass. Trapagan says the extent of things like erosion, invasive species growth, and damages to native plants as a result of the build are not yet clear. And more local stakeholders should have been consulted. Elisa Resnick, KJAZZ News, Tucson. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.